We've been looking at the meaning and symbols of baptism. We've seen what it means in terms of allegiance, in terms of a covenant that we made with God. We've seen it in terms of change, which we looked at last week. And today we're going to look at the idea of drama, that it's, it's a drama that's played out between the blood and the water. And this is kind of a tough one to connect, so I'm going to need your help today a little bit, kind of look at a little bit more, um, maybe concentrate a little bit more. Uh, not that you don't always concentrate, so I'm not. <laughs> but I believe that there's some beautiful images behind here in terms of the drama of what it means to be in Christ and what it means for the blood of Christ uh, to give us the forgiveness that we have and how that's connected to the water baptism. Now, I've also had several books that I've referred to throughout the series. I sent an email out this morning with all those links. So if you're on our church email list, you have all those links that you can go and get them yourselves just off there. But in our lobby, the Welcome Center, a couple of those books are available. And just want to talk about them for just a moment. The first one's the good news uh, of, of the gospel, and that is just a real basic introduction of what the gospel story is all about. Uh, there's a book called Preparing for Baptism that's at the Welcome Center as well. A real short little book about uh, the meaning of baptism, what that's about. Those two books are, are free. Please pick them up. Uh, if you don't need them for yourself, give them to somebody else. We've had a third book out there, The Story of Churches of Christ. This one's $5, okay? It's brand new. But um, it's a real good book about uh, the restoration movement in terms of how the Church of Christ came, Church of Christ came to be as well. And we've been connecting the idea of being dunked in the name of Jesus, and quite simply, we've said this, that the New Testament's clear about baptism, about being dunked, immersed, submerged, plunked, under, if you will. The word dip means to be plunged under as well. There, there's no, no discrepancy whatsoever. People have screwed it up. The church messed it up over hundreds of years. And so today you have Christians who believe in the same Lord who don't believe that baptism is even necessary and others who are so legalistic about it, if you don't say the right words or do it exactly right, it doesn't count either. And yet we still show allegiance to the same Lord. And so what we have to look at and make the decision is, are we going to follow after men or follow after the Word of God? And that, that's really what it comes down to, Right? to follow what the Word of God says. Now, it's interesting when you look, as we look so far just historically a little bit about this, we got to the Anabaptists last week, the 1500s, where they said, we need more than just reform. We need to reinstitute the New Testament. And they were called Anabaptists. They didn't call themselves that. They didn't like the term, but it meant that you were rebaptized as an adult. In other words, infant baptism, it was forced on you. You didn't make that decision. Someone made that decision for you. And the argument was, in the New Testament, it was always a decision by an individual who made that choice on their own. And so they were called the Anabaptists, and they were persecuted by the tens of thousands, um, uh, put to death. Some of them are very radical, so I'm not supporting everything the Anabaptists said. But in terms of, of baptism being important, that's an adult decision, they were right on that. Uh, you come to the 1700s, and then you have the Christian-only movement, where people are starting to say, why do we have all these different names? Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, why do we have all those names? Uh, we're Christians only. And so you begin to have the Christian only movement begins in the 1700s, the late 1700s, and people like um, James O'Kelly, Rice Haggard, Abner Jones, 
You have people like Elias Smith, Barton W. Stone, Thomas Alexander Campbell, Walter Scott, Raccoon John Smith. Love that name, don't you? Raccoon John Smith. <laughs> John T. Johnson. Uh, just between 1790s to 1830s, uh, maybe up into the 40s of where they're, let's get back to what the Word of God says. Let's reinstitute what the Word of God says. And that's found in the stories of the Church of Christ and many other parts there as well if you want to read about it. And it's a very good book in terms of connecting to it. But the one book, if you're really serious about knowing about baptism, that you need to have in your library, on your Kindle or iPad or whatever, is this book by Everett Ferguson about baptism the first in the early church, the first five centuries. It's 945 pages. It was written in 2009. It is the definitive book about baptism. In fact, the first 30 pages in a small font, he goes back to every book written on the subject by major writers from the 1700s and reviews all those literature and catches all the way up to 2009 to where he's at. Um, the first 200 pages alone just continue to stress over and over again, immersion was the mode of people in faith and repentance calling upon the name of the Lord that that's the way they were brought into Christ, to the church. In fact, um, there's so much about it. I just want to read a couple, of, a couple of sections from page 164. As he summarizes a lot, he covers every verse in the New Testament about uh, baptism as well as the Old Testament as well. He says, What Luke expresses as forgiveness of sins in John and 1 Peter is new birth. In Paul is the end of the old and beginning of the new life. Contrary to the modern evangelical understanding that faith affects this new life and baptism is a subsequent human work, for Paul, baptism, Paul's characteristics teaching baptism is to connect it with the death and resurrection of Christ. The association of baptism with the death of Christ ties it to the means of forgiveness of sins, and the association with resurrection ties it to the new life of the Spirit consequent to baptism. Paul sets baptism in the context not only of the atoning death of Christ, but also of a response of faith. Baptism was an immersion in water. Efforts to make baptize metaphorical in some passages are inconsistent with those texts where Paul certainly had water baptism in mind and the prevailing usage of the word among Christians. See, many today say, well, it's really not a literal water baptism. It's it's just figuratively speaking, and he, he disputes that. According to Paul, the Holy Spirit is both active in baptism and an abiding presence in the life of the baptized believer. Baptism is the occasion of divine actions in bringing the benefits of the death of Christ to the believer and in introducing one into the community of salvation. And so just, that's just a little snippet of throughout the entire book of where he, he goes through and just shows the importance of water the importance of faith and repentance, how that's all connected in terms of forgiveness of sins and entering to the eternal life through Jesus Christ. But here's what I keep coming back to. It's what Jesus said. And to me, that's the most important thing. When Jesus has gathered his disciples together, his apostles, and he's sending them out into the world, he gives them very specific instructions about what he wants them to do, doesn't he? And he's very clear about it. There's no ambiguity about it. Go make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I mean, it is just clear, isn't it? That's from Jesus. And so anything I might have learned from tradition or anything I might believe that would dilute that in any way is wrong. I want to, what, I want to do what Jesus wants me to do, amen? And this is what Jesus is calling us to do in terms of that. Now, I've, I've, we've looked at the term Hebrew word and the Greek word about baptism to mean to dunk and to plunge. Let me give you uh, two other associations. It's also used in connection, the word tabal, in terms of dyeing a garment. Of where you take a garment and you dye it a different color. You plunge it into the dye to change its color. That's the same concept that's used in the Jewish terms of washing or bathing. And then the other way it's used is in terms of a sunken ship. Now, would you agree with me if a ship is sunk, it's under the water? I mean, it's it's pretty clear, isn't it? So when writers during the time are using this term, they're using it in terms of a sunken ship. They use it in terms of dyeing a garment. Josephus used it as a historian in terms that Herod the king dyed his hair. But he also used the same term that Herod the king drowned his sons. So there is absolutely no dispute about in the time in which the word's associated that it's always referring to plunging other, dunking, dying, drowning, sinking ship, etc. So we keep coming back to that, don't we? So how do we get today where there's all these different modes of baptism? It came from people, not God. It came from people and not God. So what I want to look at today is the drama the blood and the water. And Jack Smith and I had a great conversation about this past week. And if you want to know more details about the blood and how it connects the Old Testament stuff, I would encourage you to sit down with Jack. Just really does a great job in this. I'm going to do more of an overview of different titles, how it comes in together. But this idea of the drama of the blood and water is so important. In fact, what do we do in communion every Sunday? When we take of communion, what are we remembering? Yeah, blood of Christ. His death until he comes. What does that mean? Another thing that we do is baptism. What's the association of baptism? That I'm baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. I'm baptized into his name. The association with, with the blood and the water. And so this idea of being able to change, the idea of being washed in Jesus is the central part of the Christian life. It's the power of that Jesus gives us to change. Do you believe that? Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now he's about to give a list here of some of the wrongdoers. These are not just all the wrongdoers, but these are some of them, okay? They cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanders, swindlers, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. See, they're separated from God, aren't they? That's pretty clear, isn't it? So that is what he's saying. And then he makes this statement, and that is what some of you what? Were. See the past tense? It's not what some of you are. 
He doesn't say, well, you don't have the ability to change. He doesn't say, well, that's just your weakness. That, that's just the way you're oriented. No, he says that's the way some of you were. Indicating what? You can change. Now, how did that change take place? You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, I want you to notice the word washed, justified, sanctified. They all happen at the same time. In the Greek, it's the aorist, which means it's a snapshot. It means that this happens all at the same time. The people who could not inherit the kingdom of God are now able to inherit the kingdom of God because they've been washed, justified, sanctified in the name of Jesus Christ. So when we are dunked in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are now justified, sanctified, that's made holy, just as if I've never sinned, declared righteous by God, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and that's the way I used to be, but now I'm a new creation. Amen? Is that powerful? It's a powerful story, a drama, of where my life is so messed up, I can be involved in the things that Paul is talking about, and Jesus can come into my life, and I accept by faith who he is, call upon his name, repent of my sins, and be washed in his name, and I'm now sanctified and justified before God. Isn't that powerful? All at once. It's beautiful. Now then, in Romans 5, verse 9, here's the connection. Since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So I'm not, I am not justified by water. I'm justified by his what? By his blood. So the question we have this morning in terms of drama is when do I come in contact with that blood? And what we're going to find out is it's at water. It's obeying God in terms of being dunked in his name. The connection of the blood and water. So let me go back to Numbers 19 for just a moment. Old Testament, whew, this is a gross story. This is, this, okay. I've been around some of this um, on the farm growing up um, around my grandparents. It, slaughter is ugly and horrible. I'm thankful I'm a New Testament covenant person, not Old Testament guy, aren't you? I'm glad the Old Testament's gone. Too gory for me. Love the New Testament. But there's a drama here that's played out. The Lord says to Moses and to Aaron, this is a requirement of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer without defect or blemish and that has never been under a yoke. So you want a perfect red cow. Okay? Notice what's next. Give it to Eliezer the priest. It's to be taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Then Eliezer the priest is to take some of his blood on his finger and sprinkle it seven times towards the front of the tent of meeting. The word there literally is that word, tobah, to plunge it under. Plunge your finger in there, sprinkle it towards the front, front tent of meeting. Okay? Now, they're to do it outside the camp. Have you ever been around a slaughter of a, of a cow? Am I the only one? Okay. <laughs> not a pretty sight, is it? Pretty gory and bloody. So you're not going to do this in the presence of people. You're going to take it outside the camp, and you're going to slaughter it out there. 
There's a second reason to also receive the stench. The stench of the blood, but also the stench that they're about to do is that while he watches the heifers to be burned. So this heifer is taken outside the camp, drama, to be burned. Now notice the the next scriptures, all right? Now in verse 7, the priest is going to have to wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Why? Physically, he has what all over him? There's blood, the stench, the slaughter and the stench. The man who burns the heifer is also going to have to wash his clothes and get rid of the stench. And he's going to be unclean for a period of time as well. Okay? A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and put them in a ceremonially clean place outside the camp. They are to be kept by the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. It's for what? Purification from sin. So now you have the ashes from the heifer that have to be gathered, put in a ceremonial container outside the camp, and then anytime someone needs to be washed, and incidentally this washing, they had to take some of the ashes of that heifer to put in the water in order for that person to be purified again. That's pretty dramatic, isn't it? Y'all say, man, how did we get in the Old Testament? It's number 19. <laughs> I understand. But the, the connection here is just interesting to me. This idea of the blood sprinkled towards the front of tent of meaning, washing for the purification of sins. And you come to Peter, and Peter talks about in the context of Noah and the ark, but he says the water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body. I don't have the slaughter and stench of the heifer on me, so to speak. So it's not that removal, but it's a pledge of a clear conscience towards God. That's what it does for me. And that's how he connects it from that standpoint. Then Hebrews 9 verse 7, the drama continues. Let's tie this together. Only the high priest entered the inner room, and that was only once a year, and never without what? Are you with me? Without blood. Which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that had committed in ignorance. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, aren't you glad he came as your high priest? He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. Continues. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his what? His own blood, thus obtaining what? Eternal redemption. Through Christ, we have eternal redemption through his blood. Amen? Wonderful. It continues. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God... Cleanse our consciences from acts that are lead to death so that we may serve the living God. See the drama there? What Jesus has done for us. So he says in verse 15, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. You part of the new covenant? How am I part of the new covenant? Through the blood of Christ. How do I get access to the blood of Christ? We're going to see in just a moment. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he's died as a what? As a ransom 
to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Now, that's what he says. Now, you go to Hebrews chapter 10. Continues the thought. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence in the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with what? Sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. So how do I draw near to God? Through faith in Christ Jesus, amen? I draw near to him with a sincere heart, that full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, it's blood, and having our bodies, what? Washed with pure water. Now, later on, people get this confused, and they think the sprinkling has to do with water. The sprinkling's in reference to the blood. The washing is always with what? With the water. The two are connected, you go back to here, that they are connected, that through faith we draw full assurance to God, and by doing so, our hearts are sprinkled with the blood of Christ, and we're washed, we're washed with pure water, what Jesus has done for us. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies were burned outside the camp. Does that sound familiar? What do they do with the heifer outside the camp? And so Jesus offered outside the city gate wine to make people holy, how? Through his own blood. So are we pretty clear at this point, the connection of the blood of Christ with making us holy, giving us deliverance, the eternal covenant, the relation to forgiveness of sins. Are are we all with that, okay? Now then, let's go to Hebrews 13 again. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. We have an eternal covenant. That eternal covenant is New Testament covenant that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ that we have. Now I just want to trace very quickly the importance of the blood of Christ because it's the blood of Christ through which we have forgiveness of sins. Are you with me? So we have to ask the question, where do we have contact with the blood of Christ? When does that occur? Because it tells in Ephesians, now in Christ Jesus, you who once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we're alienated from God, but now we've been brought near to him. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, that we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We're to be obedient to Jesus Christ because we've been what? Sprinkled with his blood, hearts, conscience, made clean. Now in 1 John 1, but if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, does what? Purifies us from all sin. What purifies us from sin? What, where do we receive our forgiveness of sins? Through whom? Jesus Christ, his blood, was offered for us, placed in the Holy of Holies for us. Revelation 1.5. Jesus Christ, who's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by what? By his blood. Again in Revelation. In him we have redemption. Oops. I'm sorry, Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with what? The riches of God's grace. 
All right, so what do we have here? Here's the drama played out. In the Old Testament, they had the, the bull, the goats, the calves, the blood. They had the water of purification as well. We had all that connected. We have Christ coming once and for all to offer himself for our sins on our behalf, to be our sacrifice of atonement. And he offers himself and his blood that's shed for us. Through that blood, we have the forgiveness of sins. We're justified, we're redeemed, we're set free, we're ransomed through Jesus Christ. Are you with me? In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now, notice how forgiveness of sins is connected with baptism. Romans 2.38, Acts 2.38, rather. Repent and be baptized, be dunked, every one of you, in what? The name of Jesus Christ, for what? For forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere in the New Testament, when it talks about belief and repentance, calling upon the name of the Lord, confessing his name, they are either presupposed or linked to water baptism. The way we come in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ and enter into that salvation relationship with Christ is through water baptism. When we make that decision out of faith and repentance, heart sprinkled by the blood of Christ, to be washed, to be immersed in the name of Jesus. And it has to be in the name of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Jesus is the one who's done all this. It's in his name, by faith, repentance. And your sins will be forgiven. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're added to the Lord's church. You are justified, sanctified, and have the gift of the Holy Spirit that's working within you. Isn't that a beautiful picture played out? So when we partake of communion every, every time we partake of, it's a drama, isn't it? We're reenacting what Jesus has done for us. And from that drama, we receive the strength for the upcoming week, the things that are facing us, the hope that's found in Jesus Christ, that he changes us. When we're baptized, it's not a one-time deal. But baptism, when we're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, is to be a reminder for us, a drama acted out, that when we are trying to live for Jesus, when we are faced with temptation, when we're faced with difficulties, that we remember how we were made a new creation by the new birth when we were baptized, dunked in the name of Jesus Christ to have our sins washed away and become part of his community. Beautiful drama that we live throughout all of our life. So what I do with this?